Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. I am one of the hosts, myself and Dr. Fit started this podcast, and our goal is to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And we have another good episode in store for you all today. We'll be talking about ALL reconstruction or the anterior lateral ligament reconstruction. We'll kind of touch over some of, uh, you know, anterior lateral rotary instability of the knee, what it is, we go over some anatomy with us, and the guest that we have today is none other than Dr. Dana Paisecki. A little bit more about Dr. Paisecki, he did his medical school at Vanderbilt University. He did his residency at HSS, or the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, and he completed a fellowship in sports medicine at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Of note, he does have a long history of athletics, which I found was pretty interesting. And he was actually a Division One NCAA swimmer. And he was actually a member of the United States National Flatwater Sprint kayaking team for four years in 1996 to 2000. He was actually also a U.S. Olympic Training Center resident athlete for two years. And he is currently the fellowship director for the sports program at Ortho Carolina. So... Without further ado, I hope you all enjoy our episode with Dr. Paisaki. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Paisaki, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you on and uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Wendell. Great to be on with you. Yeah, and I think we're talking a little bit, I guess, before off air, a little bit about this topic, and, you know, we're looking forward to it, and I think it'll be a good one to kind of talk about um, ALLs or anterolateral ligament reconstructions. Um, I think it'll be, you know, useful, and, you know, we'll we'll dive into uh, a lot of different things here in a bit. Yeah, that's it. This is a controversial area. This is one of these hot-button issues that comes up every couple of years. You have something like this in sports, and... um, lot of lot of controversy a lot of a uh, lot of uncertainty so to speak and and uh, <clears throat> definitely something you'll see a lot of in the literature right now yeah and we typically start off asking just a couple questions getting to know you so you know one of the first general questions that we have is you know looking back at it now is there any advice that you would give yourself just starting residency you know looking back at it say you know this is one piece of advice that you if you could go back in time and give yourself what would that be <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I think I tell myself, hang in there. It's gonna get a lot better. And yeah, uh, yeah I think you know, residency is tough. You guys are right in the throes of it, and it's hard to believe. I think I remember thinking back to to getting through it that you don't really think it's ever gonna end. You think you're gonna be in residency forever. You start thinking after you know, certainly by the PGY three year, you start thinking this is this is it. Um, <laughs> and and it does, it does get better. At some point, the system spits you out and you get back, you get into a life that is, uh, it's fantastic. And so it's worth it. Hang in there is what I tell myself. Um, and I probably also tell myself, don't sweat the details so much. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. It, a lot of the, what you're learning, it, it seems like you're drinking from the fire hose, like every rotation, every time you switch services from one thing to the next, it seems like, you know, there's just you know, how in the world can, uh, can I learn all this? And when you get out in practice and you start actually practicing, uh, seeing patients, it, it becomes very manageable. 
Well, that is um, good advice there. So anybody listening to this, because we, we have residents that listen to this as well, um, hang in there. I myself will take your advice and hang in there as well. Um, next question we have for you is what, what made you choose academics to go into out of all the different, you know, um, you know, types of practice that you can do as an orthopedic surgeon? Why, what brought you to that route? You know, that's a great question. I'll tell you what, when I was in residency, I was, uh, so I did my residency training at a uh, hospital for special surgery and I loved it. I had a blast there. I learned a ton, but, uh, and that was sort of a private academic kind of environment. And I think you kind of get, you get kind of um, scarred a little bit from the residency experience, not from there being a problem with the, with the program, but just it's, you know, it's taxing. It's kind of PTSD. You get a little bit of like, you know, flashbacks and tremors when you start thinking about <laughs> what that was like. And so you, the sort of the instinct is you kind of associate the opposite of your residency with what must be better. And so I actually remember being in residency and thinking, man, I, don't, I think I just want to do private practice. I mean, how in the world can academics be good? Because I'm in the middle of that sort of an environment now. And I, I don't think I want to do that. And then I did my sports fellowship. And I, I trained at Rush for sports fellowship. And um and I, it was just a different environment, and it was highly academic, very high uh, volume um, research productivity, and, uh, and it really made me sort of see research in a different way. And it, it, that's nothing against the experience academically I had at, at HSS. It just was, it was tough for it kind of wore me down a little bit. And so I got the fellowship and sort of felt like, man, this research thing is not so bad. It's kind of interesting to ask questions and to get answers for it. And I I came to appreciate more, partly I think just because I started to learn more and understand better what I was actually going to be doing when I was in practice, that it's fun to teach. And, you know, my mentors, and I started to appreciate this in retrospect from my residency mentors as well, kind of started to understand why it was neat to be able to teach. And, um, and that, that kind of thrill you get from taking somebody who doesn't really know how to do an operation or didn't understand how to handle a patient in the office in a certain way and to shepherd them through, you know, some of these controversial issues like the AL, like we're talking about tonight, um, really adds a lot to your practice. I think you'll find you go through a phase when you go into practice that is initially overwhelming, where you're the one responsible, you have to come up with the solution. And if something happens in the operating room, a complication occurs or something like that, you, you, the buck stops with you. And that's an overwhelming thing. And you're just starting to get a grasp on all the material you've been trying to learn since the beginning of residency. And then you have to deal with that obstacle. But then after about five to seven years or so of practice, uh, it all starts to look pretty similar. And um, that, that I learned that from my fellowship training, talking with my mentors, and they all said the same thing. Look, after five years, it's going to seem like applesauce. I mean, everything seems like the same kind of thing. It's not as challenging anymore. You're going to want to have uh, contact with with teaching or, or residents or mm. otherwise it'll get stale. And, um, and, and, and that's really the thing that pushed me over the edge to say, Hey, listen, I think I want to have that. If I can, I want to have that kind of interaction in my practice. And I was lucky enough to, to find an opportunity where I could do that. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people say kind of some similar things, what you're saying, like, you know, uh, first couple of years out, somebody may kind of develop and hone their skills. And after that, you know, it'd be good to, you know, kind of help pay it forward or, you know, get into the role of teaching, being able to help others um, out. And I think that's a good actually segue or transition into now you're actually good on an even grander scale because you're, you're one of the, you're the fellowship 
uh, program director uh, for your program. What are the questions I had about that are, since taking that role, are there any lessons or any things that you've learned, maybe even about yourself um, after taking that, th this role of uh, director of the fellowship? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that that position for me has, it's crystallized for me a little bit more why I love to teach. I think I, I've been on fellowship faculty here for um, a dozen years at least. And, and so teaching the fellows here, teaching our residents has been really rewarding. But then when you take on the role of saying, look, I got to chart the trajectory of this program and try to make sure that the experience stays a good one. And I inherited a very successful program um, from one of my partners, Jim Fleischley, who'd been fellowship director before me. And he was really and is responsible for the, the program being what it is. But, you know, I, I assumed the mantle and, and, and started thinking, how am I going to make sure this thing doesn't just com completely implode and collapse? And it forces you to think about why you're teaching and what's good about teaching and how you can really optimize the experience for the the residents and fellows that you're teaching. And I think, so I think the role for me kind of crystallized what I'd mentioned to you before to an even greater degree, you know, why am I doing this? You know, what's fun about teaching? And, um, you know, as you teach, you'd realize it, it made me really appreciate all the mentors that put up with me in my residency <laughs> and in my fellowship too. You know, yeah. you, you don't really appreciate it when you're in the learning phase, but the attending has done it so many times before that it you're you know that it's it's a slower process when you're taking somebody through it naturally you know you can't expect them to be as fast as as you are having done it for you know a couple decades yeah. and um, but it takes a lot of patience and um, a lot of passion about really wanting to be a part of that that resident or fellow's career and, and to try to help them along and and so I, I think it made me think a lot about that. Um, it made me think more about my practice and where I want my practice to go as time goes on. But mostly it, it really, I think, made me appreciate how lucky I am to be in, in a practice where I can teach and where I can do this kind of a thing, because it really is a privilege to be able to see, see guys come, when men and women come up through the ranks in terms of the training process, and then to go out there and have an impact on patients uh, and to help shepherd them through the process the way that you wish you had been shepherded through and, and it, uh, if nothing else, just to try as best you can to duplicate the kind of mentors you had going through. It's, it's a, it's a neat process. And it made me, I think, think about that a lot more. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And you can even just tell just from talking to you, how passionate you are about, uh, about teaching and, you know, and, and walking people through things and, you know, helping them grow, uh, you know, as a person, as well as a surgeon. So I'm sure the, the fellows at your program really appreciate that and everybody else that you work with. And um, one last off orthopedic topic is, uh, you know, just kind of just reading up on you, you look like you were, you know, quite, quite the athlete and that you did some swimming back in the day, you're a division one um, NCAA swimmer since that whole experience or since that experience as well. I know you did other sports as well that you competed at high levels. Are there any things that you've taken from that or, or it may be ideals or, you know, uh, customs or things that you do um, that you still do today? Yeah, great question. I think well, swimming specifically, I spent so many hours looking at the black line at the bottom of a pool that, uh, to be quite honest with you now, um, 
I, you know, I smell chlorine. It makes me a little bit nauseated. So, <laughs> um, so I don't swim regularly. Now I do a lot of the other sports you alluded to. I do other sports to try to stay fit so I can do stuff with my kids and that kind of deal. But the, the lessons that I learned from athletics definitely apply. My practice is obviously sports. And, uh, it's so when I see a patient, that's an athlete, I, I do think I can identify well with some of the struggles they're going through. I remember that, you know, the, the sport that they were, uh, that I was doing at the time when I was their age and going through that phase of life was the most important thing in the world. And I, you know, there are values to, to appreciate with that and, and understanding that there's a life bigger than that, but also at the time it's a critical identity issue for athletes to have that kind of connection. And, uh, and then of course the, the ideals that just go into being successful in any sport, which is the stuff that makes you a good resident and all your co-residents uh, survivable in the process, which is just commitment, discipline, self-sacrifice, enduring pain for longer than anybody else. I mean, honestly, that's probably what made me successful in the sports that I did is not any skill greater than anybody else. I just was somehow capable of enduring pain longer than most people. And if you stick it out for long enough, most people get wise to it and, you know, have a normal life. And if, <laughs> if you do something yeah. for long enough and you hang in there for long enough, you're, you're going to outlast a lot of the competition. So those kinds of ideals, I think, taught me a lot um, about sticking, sticking to it. And, and really what you learn in, in probably every profession, but particularly in surgery in the training is, is how do you ultimately apply that kind of perseverance and, and discipline and uh, commitment to make lives better for your patients. And uh, so it, it sort of fed into the whole, the residency and fellowship training and all the things that go into being successful in the operating room and in the office too. It all kind of blends together. Nice. I love it. Great answer. Uh, wouldn't change that. You know, that's, that's great. Um, so now let's kind of just switch gears and, you know, kind of talk about our topic of the day. And, you know, kind of just a, just a quick case or a, a made-up patient. So say, for example, Dr. Fraseki, you get a 25-year-old female is referred to your clinic. She said that she had a history of an ACL injury that was reconstructed, but she still feels like her knee gives way. Uh, she was referred to you by a colleague who said that she still had a normal Lachman exam, couldn't really find out much that's going on. Um, given that we're talking about, you know, we'll be talking about ALL reconstructions and, and we'll be talking about, you know, a little bit of anterior lateral instability. Can we first just kind of just go over some of the lateral knee anatomy and, and what, you know, those anterior lateral knee structures are and kind of what their functions, what they, what they do? Yeah, sure. So, um, the, you've got a slide, let's say, oh, you got a nice slide here showing this basically. So the, the issue with the lateral aspect of the knee, I, I'll tell you, it actually, the, the, you, you get the feeling if you read the literature that the ALL is somehow like, it just grew in human knees all of a sudden. It wasn't there before. And then all of a sudden we discovered this new thing. Obviously it's been there from the beginning of time. It's been there all the way through the, the evolution of understanding about, a, about ACLs, multi-ligaments, knee injuries, posterior lateral corner injuries and that sort of thing. Um, so I think it's, it's a little bit of an emphasis, uh, a little bit, in my opinion, of the, the emperor has no clothes here to some degree. And we can talk about that later, but the essential anatomy that you're, that we're really talking about here is, is the capsule of the lateral aspect of the knee. And, um, you have essentially 
the 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 function of the capsule and the A cell, if you think about it, um, is is sort of codependent when it comes to preventing too much translation of the lateral femoral condyle on the lateral tibial plateau. And so there is, if what you've got drawn in this picture here is essentially a continuity between the lateral capsule on the lateral aspect of the joint, which extends from the, just below the meniscus on the, on the lateral plateau, about 10 millimeters down from the joint line and midway between the proximal fibula and Gerdes tubercle. And it, it extends up underneath the LCL and around the over-the-top position on the, the distal femur and, and is in many ways continuous with where the ACL then extends inside the joint. And so that whole region, that path has been identified as a means to sort of stabilizing the lateral femoral condyle. The, what you have in the outer aspect of the knee in general includes a number of things that attach to that. So you've got the lateral capsule, it intermingles with the undersurface of the LCL. And then the so-called ALL um, really is just, it's a thickening of capsule that, that, that resides underneath the IT band and extends to a point on the lateral of the condyle, just adjacent to where the LCL attaches. And um, yeah, so you've got a picture here, this picture on the right, the ALL structure is, is shown and the LCL, which is right underneath it. Um, and the issue with some of these anatomic studies, I have to tell you, this is, you're, you're young in your years right now in terms of the training, but do you, I'm not sure, are you familiar at all with the double bundle literature? The double bundle yeah, literature? yeah, with that, Dr. Freddie Fu was a, a big proponent of that as, as far as from what I've read and from what I remember. Uh, with the different bundles, yeah, one to kind of control uh, rotation and the other one was kind of more of a thought to help control flexion. Yes, exactly. So to deal with that, and I'm not trying to knock on double the double bundle concept because I think that that really taught us a lot about ACLs and how we should be doing ACL reconstructions. But one of the things that I loved that came up in the debate about double bundle ACLs was um, was an anatomical dissection. There are a bunch of videos that sort of circulated at the academy and at AOSSM that, that showed a cadaveric specimen with an ACL, and then a surgeon was kind of dissecting the ACL to, to show the two bundles. And, and you really get the feel, you know, again, not to knock the double bundle idea, but that with enough dissection, you're going to create two bundles there. You know, you kind of divide the ACL enough and you have two bundles. Um, right provide it with a scalpel. So what we're seeing here in these pictures and a lot of the cadaveric studies is it, it is a structure, but it's a thickening of the capsule. And it's not the same thing as a true ligament. So if you look at that picture there, the LCL, which actually is quite a small ligament, although it's a true ligament and is a vital part of function of the lateral aspect of the knee. The ALL is in this particular specimen, and this is as robust as it gets, yeah. Um, is in a, is really a thickening of, of capsular tissue that blends over the top of the LCL. And it does, it does provide some function. There's no question about where it is and what it does. Um, but I, I, we, we can talk about this in, in great detail later if you want, but it, in my opinion, is a little bit controversial as to how important it is when you really look at the clinical data. But just talking about anatomy first, that's what we're, that's the issue is a thickening of the capsule just over top of the LCL and extending to the tibia. And then there's all this 
debate as well about other portions of the lateral aspect of the knee that contribute to this type of function as well, particularly the IT band. Um, and as you know, the IT band runs down the lateral thigh and it attaches to Gertie's tubercle. And there are fibers that connect underneath the IT band uh, to the region of the ALL and the, as well as the over-the-top position and the LCL called Kaplan's fibers. Um, and and that it's a complex of those things, the ALL, the IT band, and Kaplan's fibers that have been theorized to provide this extra stability to the outer aspect of the knee. Okay, so our extra articular um, structures, you know, on the lateral side, things that we think of are those Kaplan fibers from the IT band. We have our ALL, which is the thickening of the capsule. Um, and then, you know, as well as our anterior lateral capsule itself. Um, and is, is this kind of like those play, it's like that plus the intra-articular structures both playing a role in, in helping um, keep your, you know, your, your, your knee stable and, and stopping from your, your lateral femoral condyle from translating? Or lateral yeah, so toe? That's the thinking. I mean, the thinking is um, that, you know, the, it, it's kind of sort of common sense when you really boil it down. I mean, the, the thing which attaches the femur to the tibia, there are multiple things, right? It's the right. ACL, PCL, the collateral ligaments, the capsule, IT band, and extensor mechanism, and then the extraarticular muscles posteriorly. And, and what we're really seeing here, I think, is, is an increased amount of attention on a, on a portion of all those things working together that when it comes to essentially allowing a pivot shift to happen where the tibia is subluxed anteriorly because of, of deficiency in the ACL, a portion of what allows that subluxation to happen is laxity in that anterolateral ligament complex. Okay. Yeah, it's designed basically to prevent that translation and rotation of the lateral tibia. Okay, because I've seen, you know, multiple studies. Some say the ALL is is more of a um, restraint with higher degrees of flexion, you know, more, I think, greater than 35, and some say greater than 60. That I guess that thickening, uh, like some of the cadaveric studies, they, they, you know, dissect all down and then they put a stress on and look to see you know what's tight on the lateral side and they they call that the ALL um, I guess in your experience is there any you just kind of say these structures coalesce and they and they have this type of a function or can you say like the ALL does this or what do you I guess from your experience what function per se. So the issue is that the, the biomechanical studies are controversial because it's difficult to truly say that the um, the issue with the ALL is it can be found to have a level of function in lots of different knee positions with lots of in lots of different circumstances. So it's it's hard to say. I think if you took all the data together and summarized it, the the concept is that generally what's clinically relevant is the knee at around 30 degrees of flexion, preventing an anterolateral rotatory relationship between the lateral femocondyle and the lateral tibial plateau. But you're right that sometimes those structures in the cutting studies that have been done really don't come into play except in higher degrees of flexion. So what that tells me, uh, and what I think if you read between the lines for a lot of these cadaveric studies and a lot of the biomechanical studies is, it's probably, if there's not one consensus agreement about what it does, it probably is not as well understood as we think it is. And, and while it may play a role and it makes sense to play a role, 
it's probably not as vital as the ACL itself or the LCL or the popliteus tendon or the, the capsule in general, posterolaterally. So it's, this is one of the things you're seeing already, I think, in this, in this part of the data set that's out there is this concept is, it's, it may not be as, as clear as, as some of the, the literature suggests it is. Okay. So just kind of rewinding, say we, you know, we had that 25-year-old female history of the ACL reconstruction comes in your office, still complaining, you know, she's a athlete. And when she goes to turn, she feels like her knee is giving away on her. What are some of the things that you want to make sure that you get when you're getting a, at least a good history on this patient, as well as doing a physical exam on them? So, yeah, so the, the first thing you want to try to, or at least that I want to trigger, try to figure out is that I want to do a good history and a physical um, and I want to understand on imaging as well, if I can get a story for and an explanation for why she's having those symptoms. So there are lots of explanations for instability or a sense of instability after really any surgery, but particularly after an ACL. One of them is just quad weakness. And you'll see a lot of patients after ACL reconstruction that are where something about the ACL is blamed early on in the recovery. Uh, and it's, it's not actually the ACL, even if the ACL has failed, let's say, many patients will have complaints of instability, but it's not when the ACL is normally stressed. It can be simply walking straight ahead or walking downstairs, and that, that's a rehab issue. That's a quad function issue. And so I, the first thing I'm wondering is when is it, when is it unstable? Um, and if, but if, let's assume that you think it's related to rotational stability of the knee and that she says, hey, listen, I, I'm fine, my quad strength's back to normal. I've ne I never quite felt like I got knee stability back. Um, and you check her, her graft and it's, let's say um, it's, it's stable as I think in your history, it suggested it was stable on Lachman testing. Right. Uh, it still feels unstable. So the thing that we've learned in the past number of years, one of the most common clinical presentations uh, this is one of the most common clinical presentations for a, a, a stable graft A to P, but a, a vertically positioned graft uh, on the femoral side, either high on the femur or posterior on the tibia or both. And what you find in those graphs is that they have something of an isometric position within the joint. In other words, they don't change their length throughout motion and they don't get stressed in the rehab or in activities afterwards. So there's a saying the graft survives the knee um, rather than the other way around. Um, and what that means is that the graft doesn't stretch out necessarily over time because it's not seeing a lot of excess force at all. It's not actually doing what it's supposed to do. It's existing in the eye of a hurricane of forces around the joint. But in order to do so, it doesn't provide that rotational stability that the knee needs. And so grafts that are doing that, where you have a stable Lachman, but they, the patient still has what you think is rotational instability. What I would want to know is, uh, is there a pivot shift? Is there, can you objectively show on exam that they actually have um, rotational laxity of the knee? And the first thing I would be thinking about there, uh, which is a much more common clinical occurrence in, in my practice and in, in my experience, is that there's deficiency, um, not of the ALL, but of, uh, of the, the graft position and it's probably a vertical ACL graft and that there may be a technical explanation for it. The other thing you want to know is, is it, is it purely rotational or is there a side to side laxity issue? Because uh, as you probably know, it's a quite common 
coexistence to have a low-grade posterior lateral corner laxity pattern where you have a stretch injury to the LCL or to the posterior lateral capsule that hasn't shown up on an MRI. And you, so you may have a subtle varus laxity or a dial exam that's positive. And so sometimes you have other ligaments that are involved. I think specific to the ALL debate, I think you can check the pivot shift. And if you have a high-grade pivot pre-op in patients that have substantial hyperlaxity or post-op, if you feel that there's a lot of extra anterolateral translation. I guess, I guess what I'm, where I'm going with it is you want to try to, to characterize what are some common causes of instability uh, that go with having had an ACL that's stable front to back. And one of them would be the graft is not positioned right. So in that situation, you'd have a positive pivot shift. You can, you can assess if the, if the pivot is positive, but there's a really pronounced degree of anterolateral proximal tibial translation. So if you see a really big clunk in a setting of a, of a, like a, 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 like a three plus pivot or a high two plus pivot shift exam, but you got a stable Lachman, that's a situation where you might say, okay, maybe we have some relaxity of the anterolateral capsule. Uh, but it's much, I can't, I can't say in my practice of 14 years, I've ever actually seen that clinical situation. It's always been a technical positioning issue with the graph, which is quite common where it's too vertical, or there's been some varus laxity that was unrecognized with a stretch injury to the posterior lateral corner that just wasn't picked up on MRI. So I'm looking at, okay, history-wise, um, you know, when do you feel instability? Is it, is it a rehab issue or do we really think it's a ligamentous issue? If it's a ligamentous issue, are we convinced that it's with rotation? Um, or is it with a side-to-side -side issue that might make us think about varus uh, or valgus for that matter? Uh, so MCL, posterolateral corner, and then I'm going to my exam to check, is there a pivot shift? How, how significant is it? Do I sense that there's increased varus or valgus laxity or dial asymmetry when I'm checking the other ligaments? And then imaging wise, I'm looking to see, do we have an obvious technical explanation for this being an issue? Do we see tunnel malposition or um, substantial tibial slope issues or other explanations for why the ACL may not be perfect? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I think that was a great um, explanation on definitely things to be on the lookout for in history, just like you said, quad weakness or, you know, something with rehab that's going on or, you know, was it the, the placement of the tunnel, you know, all these other things that could be causing, uh, you know, this patient, these feelings of instability. And you mentioned the pivot and shift test. Can you kind of explain um, what the test is doing and how it's performed? Because I remember for a while I knew, you know, I knew it was, you know, you know, valgus and I knew that technically how to how to do the exam, but I didn't, I don't think I really understood what was actually happening in the knee until like, yeah. you know, recently, you know, so can you kind of go into what that exam is? Yeah, this is something that always, and I remember this was like a, every, it's a gimme on the in-training exam. And it actually is on your, was on my board exam too. Oh, wow. Um, okay. It, but it sounds like super complicated. And it's really not like if you if you practice doing a pivot shift exam a couple of times and you just think about it while you're doing it in an ACL deficient knee, it becomes crystal clear. Um, it's it's not something you can memorize. You kind of it's like riding a bike. But the the way to remember it is if you don't have an ACL that's functioning in your knee, when the knee is in extension, 
the tibia will be subluxed anteriorly. So the starting point for a pivot shift exam is an abnormal tibiofemoral relationship where the tibia is too far anterior. And what you're doing essentially when you, when you apply the various forces, and there are lots of different descriptions for exactly how to do this, but essentially if you load the joint in some capacity, so you apply like an axial load through the foot so that the joints compress. If you then go into flexion from an extended position, and again, there are variables about how you, whether you apply valgus or internal rotation, or you do it with, uh, with a neutral rotation with varus or with abduction of the hip, all those things are like icing on the cake. The idea is that if the knee, if the tibia is subluxed anteriorly and the knee is in full extension, and you bring the knee then into a flexed position, the, the thinking is that the IT band and the lateral capsular structures then will reduce the knee into a reduced position at about 30 degrees of flexion. And what you're describing is the way in which that reduction occurs. So if, it, if it's not that sublux to begin with, when you do that maneuver, the tibia will sublux posteriorly or into, it'll reduce itself posteriorly in just a little bit of a glide. So it won't be that noticeable. You'll see a little bit of a shift. If it does it in like a more dramatic fashion, you say it was a, it was a true on shift, a two plus pivot shift. And sometimes it can do like a full on clunk where it's like almost dislocated, like the, the, the knee is almost completely dislocated and it, it'll even get stuck or locked in that position. Um, if it's a really high grade pivot where it just kind of, when it reduces, it either doesn't reduce in the multi-leg, you'll see sometimes these a pivot shift, it'll be completely locked anteriorly. But if it, if it clunks back significantly, that's a higher degree of laxity that you're, you're assessing. So it's really just, if you remember then when the knee's in extension, which is how you start that exam and uh, you've got an ACL tear, if you're starting from a position of abnormal, and by then bringing the knee into flexion, you have reduction through the IT band of the joint and you're seeing that shift of the tibia when you do it. And that, that right there was a great explanation. I remember for <laughs> a very long time, I could not explain that to you at all. I could tell you how to do it, but I could not explain that. And I think definitely understanding uh, what you're doing uh, and what's going on helps you, I guess, kind of be a little bit more keen to the actual physical exam findings and how to interpret that. So. Anybody listening that needs to replay that, please replay those last two minutes and listen to it again. Um, now, for this patient, I know that I said this one was a had a previous ACL, but in any any patient, you know, that comes in complaining of you know anterior lateral, um, you know, well they don't complain of it, but somebody that you are concerned that has anterior lateral instability. Uh, what about imaging? What imaging do you get or what do you look for on images? Do you get stress x-rays? You know, there's a lot of different things I've read. And I just kind of want to get your uh, your thoughts on. Yeah, great question, man. I mean, this is one of the areas that's a little bit controversial. I think when it comes to um, I, assessing that particular patient, I'd, I'd start with just basic x-rays. And I'm looking for tunnel position with the ACL. If you're looking specifically for the ALL, the classic thinking is that the Sagan fracture, which you've got a picture of there, that bottom left x-ray, um, there's a little chip off the, the proximal lateral tibia, which is quite honestly only present like 2% of the time with ACL tears. But when it's there, that, that's been known for decades to be associated with an ACL tear. 
and it's thought that that represents some portion of the ALL <clears throat> or the anterolateral ligament complex, whether it's the ALL specifically or a portion of the IT band that tears or, or avulses a small piece of bone. And so if you see that, it, it's always classically been associated with just having an ACL tear, but it, it, it has been thought that that may be associated with an injury to the ALL as well. It doesn't necessarily mean it alters treatment per se, but you'd say, yeah, there's an injury there. Um, most of the time, as I mentioned, though, you're not going to see a bony injury. And most of us don't really spend the time to do stress x-rays. You certainly can. There's no question about it. But certainly A to P, a, a good Lachman exam and a pivot shift exam are sensitive and specific enough exam maneuvers um, combined possibly with an MRI, which is what you typically get if you're not sure what else is going on that I, at least in my practice, have not seen the need for stress x-rays. Those tend to be a little more helpful if you've got a complex multi-leg injury or something where you're trying to really say, listen, is there a big difference from the other knee? And you've got some imaging here on the MRI, which, which will give you a sense for, is there an ACL tear or not? Um, how much translation of the, of the tibia baseline is there relative to the femur? Uh, is there a pivot shift bone bruise pattern, which is what you see on the far right there? So that central aspect, lateral femoral condyle, and bruising of the posterior tibial plateau, which are cl a classic pivot shift happened. Um, you can't really have that bone bruise pattern occur without some injury to the ACL. In fact, that's something we look for. A lot of times, if you have, if you have that vertical ACL graph that doesn't really do what it's supposed to do for rotation that we talked about before, you'll often see a patient that's, that's presenting to you with a failed ACL that on an MRI won't have a tear of the graft at all. It's, it's perfectly intact, but you'll have a pivot shift bone bruise pattern. And that can be mm. a sign that, um, that the ACL is not doing what it's supposed to do. Obviously it's allowing the, the tibia and femur to spin around each other. Just like you, if you drove a pole right through the middle of the, the center central axis of both tibia and femur, and you just rotate it around it, um, that's kind of what that vertical ACL graft is doing. But the, the answer right. is basic x-rays, and we're looking for a Sagan fracture in case we see it, but um, an MRI is really, is probably what's going to give you the most information. And the Sagan fracture, that's just due to just that kind of that forced internal rotation of the tibia, which will cause that, uh, you know, typical avulsion of, you know, that lateral capsule. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I remember somebody, if you asked me that, like, you know, intern here, I probably couldn't explain. I could probably say that a Sagan was associated with ACL. I couldn't say why. Um, so for those listening, if you're an intern, now you know if you get asked that. <laughs> um, now, moving on towards treatment, are there any of these, that, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, patients that may have, uh, you know, quad weakness that you necessarily don't think, you know, is anterolateral uh, rotary instability, but are there any, is there any uh, indications for non-op treatment in, in patients that have these this diagnosis? So, yeah, I think uh, for sure. I mean, I think if you think, if they think there's a rehab component, um, PT can definitely help. I think it, you're always trying to weigh patient-specific characteristics to try to figure out what's worth pursuing here. Because if you've got someone who's an athlete that's been through an ACL reconstruction and the recovery that goes with that, uh, you certainly don't want to commit them down an operative pathway if there's a chance that you can augment their symptoms. Even if you don't get them completely better, 
sometimes you can get them through the senior season of their collegiate career or their high school season without cutting things short and putting them through a big operation. And so a lot of times you'll see like a combination of issues. They may have a little quad weakness because they've been compensating for a knee that doesn't really feel normal because it isn't, it's not normal. There is an issue with the ACL. There may be an issue with another ligament such as the ALL or, or those other issues we talked about, but they've got a component of quad weakness as well um, or quad avoidance. And sometimes it's just an anxiety PTSD like thing where they're just stressed about injuring their knee again. And, so getting them in to do some, not just quad strengthening, but possibly some agility training and sports performance PT, and even referring them, if you think there's a, there's a site component to a sports psychologist can sometimes be helpful. Um, bracing we found can be a little bit plus minus. I think you could try uh, like a compressive knee sleeve will sometimes give a little bit of extra quad function and support around the joint. I have not personally been in, been uh, really impressed with ACL functional braces or LCL functional braces for this particular issue, but most of those braces come into play if you've got an athlete that is sort of needs an extra confidence booster um, to feel like something else is on the knee. And it, it tends to, when it does work, in my opinion, it's not really changing the biomechanics of the knee as much as it's just slowing the athlete down, which is probably not the goal. Um, you know, you want them to, perform as well as you as possible but those are all things you'd think about you know i think if if i had an athlete where i was thinking okay if we go down this other path we may be talking about revision acl reconstruction either primary or in a staged approach with bone grafting and maybe adding in supplementary ligament reconstruction issues um, i certainly would be thinking about any option to augment the symptoms with rehab with bracing um, even psychological, you know, sports performance type, um, sports psychology assistance to see, look, can we get them through if they're in the middle of a season? I think if they're at the beginning of, of a long career uh, in college or, or high school, uh, or if they're certainly a professional athlete and playing not 100% makes a bigger difference, then, um, you, you know, you start, you certainly don't want to waste their time either though. So, I think if you if there's not a big rehab component, if there's not another comorbidity at play and bracing is just you feel like, look, that's really not going to do the trick, then I always talk to patients about those options and, and we kind of work through it together. But um, you know, I think you're probably not really going to give back function to the ACL or the knee in, in a significant way if rotationally it's not working. So there is a little bit the rubber meets the road situation there where you do kind of have to be honest, look, are we really going to change this drastically? So we think about it, but um, more often than not, it's to augment symptoms, not to really solve the issue. Okay. And I think that was a good overview of, you know, kind of non-op treatment, you know, sports psychologists, you know, as far as uh, bracing therapy and different offloader type braces. We just mentioned that. Now, what are some of the operative treatment options? I didn't know what all to include. I, when I was reading, I, seen, I saw a lot of, a lot of different treatment options for um, uh, at least surgical options for, uh, you know, anterolateral knee instability. But uh, just to, if you could just kind of just touch based on what some of the options are, and then, you know, we'll kind of just dive into what we're talking about and we'll focus on ALL reconstruction. But what are just some of the things just, just so people know that these are all, you know, different options that you can go with? Yeah. So I think it depends. The, the, um, there are a lot, the approach you take depends on what you think the problem is. 
So if you think the problem is that the ACL technically um, may not have been in the ideal position for the knee, then um, at least in my practice, my focus is on that. And uh, we think about revising the ACL in a way that will give better rotational control. Maybe we think it's a graft issue. If we think there's bone loss that, was, that is at play, we do a stage bone grafting procedure. So the first thing I think about is the ACL part of it and how can we optimize that? And if that explains the whole story, then we, that's all we do. Um, if there are other ligaments involved, whether it's a posterior lateral corner, an MCL, posteromedial corner, what have you, sometimes you'll have meniscal deficiency medially that will contribute to some laxity. We focus on those issues as well. When it comes to the ALL specifically, it, let's assume we say, okay, look, the ACL failed and we feel that at least part of that was because the ALL was deficient. Um, and I have seen, a, I mean, I will tell you, I don't personally think it's as nearly as common as the literature suggests, but I have seen some patients where I, I do think that was an issue. Um, there, there are two main ways you can, you can target this that, that are out there. And there are variations in each of these major categories, but one of the approaches is to just reconstruct the ALL itself. So that thickening of capsule that, that you've got pictured there, uh, you could do that with an autograft or an allograft, and there's no consensus on which works better. Uh, the results appear to be as good with either. Uh, so, and you basically attach a graft from the, the, the origin, which is, which is just distal to the joint line on the tibia and halfway between the fibular head and Gertie's tubercle, and then to a point, a number of different possible points on the femur, um, which are probably not truly anatomic, but have been tested in multiple studies to be largely isometric. And what you're probably doing there, it's not a true anatomic reconstruction of the ALL per se, but it's a non-anatomic extra support to that anterolateral complex in the outer part of the knee. So, so this first major approach is essentially you go after, you go after the ALL specifically and that's it. Um, the other main approach is what's called an LET or lateral extraarticular tenodesis, which involves a number of different graft options that extend. Uh, so the Macintosh procedure is one of those. Um, the extraarticular plasty is something similar to that as well. The extraarticular tenodesis, all things that essentially involve wrapping tissue from around the Gertie's tubercle area over the, around the lateral aspect of the knee and through the over the top position. And in the pediatric ACL literature, for instance, that's essentially um, what's done with a Macintosh procedure, a modified Macintosh procedure. Um, and, and so that, that's a, those are all techniques essentially that route things around the, the posterolateral femur and give some of that extra function to the, the lateral capsular structure. But it's, it's really those two approaches that, that are used. So ALL approach or uh, an LET approach. Um, none of them anatomic, but they all give a little bit of extra reinforcement. So how do you choose to, like, how do you choose between the two? How do you, I guess, what are your indications for an ALL reconstruction? So the, the answer is there's no clear consensus on that in the literature. I think in the pediatric literature, the results that have best been shown are clearly with a modified Macintosh, but that's mostly for just ACL reconstruction period in prepubescent patients. And you wouldn't do an ALL in those patients because you could violate the physis on the femur and on the tibia. In the adult literature, there are as many studies that show an LET works as an ALL works. 
there's probably a slight bias now um, towards the ALL specifically over LET procedures, um, but they both have been shown equivalent. And um, you know, I've kind of already alluded probably to the fact I'm a little bit skeptical about the ALL on a routine basis. And this yeah. is one of the reasons, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I, I'm not sure I totally buy that it's as big a problem as is suggested out there right now, because you're doing, you've got these two procedures that are quite different from one another. Neither one of them is anatomic and they both work just as well. And how can that be? You know, how can it be that you have two operations designed to treat the same problem that are this different and there's no clear reason why one is better than the other. That tells me that we don't really know what we're doing um, with these reconstructions. And uh, and that it may well be that they're, they're working successfully or quote unquote successfully through the same mechanism, but that may not be a mechanism we want. And what I right. mean by that is that, that You'll see a lot in the literature. This is this is kind of representative of a lot of things that come up in sports medicine and orthopedics in general. If you start out trying to solve a problem and you don't really understand what the problem is, you will be able to find something that solves that problem somewhat. And with the limitations of our literature and what we can ascertain in terms of clinical outcomes and biomechanics, if you start asking questions about that solution to your perceived problem and they're not the right questions, you'll get a body of literature that will support that. And you're really just reinforcing the emperor has no clothes kind of idea. Uh, where indeed, if you look at the studies that have been done on out clinical outcomes after either LET or ALL reconstruction combined with ACL reconstruction, um, they, they don't, that there, these are studies that are done in patients that don't have any defined ALL injury. And you'll see, you will see actually a decrease in ACL retear rates in those, in those studies. Uh, there's a paper, a get good paper that came out a year ago that was a randomized prospective study looking at hamstring autographed ACL reconstructions and adding an LET uh, to a cohort of the, of, the, of the study. And they found a decreased retear rate in the patients that had the LET added to the ACL reconstruction. And the problem with that study, which is, and it's often cited as evidence that an LET should be added to patients who are hyperlax or have um, hyperextension pre-op, and you just think that, you know, they may stretch out a typical ACL reconstruction. The problem with that is that there's no evidence they're, they're treating an ALL problem that there. And I think the issue that we see with this reconstruction, which is brought up by the fact that these two different reconstructions both work the same. You're asking a great question. How do you know which one to do? Um, it's probably that it's slowing athletes down. And, and, it's, and we know we know all throughout sports medicine that failure rates for any, any repair or reconstruction that we do is failure rates are higher when patients are more active. Yeah. And the reality of the surgeries that we do is that they're, none of them are perfect and we never put things back exactly the way they were before. So the failure rate is always gonna be higher than the native state. And the more demands you put on that non-anatomic solution, uh, the more likely it's gonna fail. And, and so if you, if you take athletes that are super active and they have a failure, it, it, because they're super active, um, not only is, is that patient potentially gonna, 
that type of patient situation kind of reinforce that there's a major problem with ACL reconstruction that needs something like the ALL. Uh, but it, it's also gonna, um, it's gonna, it's gonna support your thesis that an ALL reconstruction is solving a problem if you right. do it and then failures are less, but it may be because you're just decreasing their activity level. So if you put something on the outer part of the knee that's not anatomic, that's constraining the knee to some degree, perhaps in a way that's not necessarily healthy, uh, but it puts the brakes on these athletes getting back to playing sports, you may well be compromising their performance in some way, and then you're getting your success rate, but through a mechanism that you don't realize. And I, I right. think this is, this is something that you'll see all throughout orthopedics and the double bundle, I would call it a, a learning debacle was something similar um, where we learned a lot about the ACL and where we should be putting it, but that was an exercise in not understanding what the real problem was and coming up with a solution before you identified what the problem was. And um, I think we may be seeing that in another, a number of other areas as well, but you're asking a great question. And I think you should keep asking that and, and wondering why there's not a good answer to it. You know, I, I think, yeah. The answer is that probably that we just don't understand well enough uh, what we're actually doing when we do one of these reconstructions. Oh, okay. Uh, well, that would be extremely, I guess, contrary to the, the next question I was going to ask you was if you had any technical pearls for um, for ALL reconstructions. Um, well, well that, how often are you doing these? Yeah, so it's a great question. So, I mean, look, I'm not... Um, a couple of disclaimers here. So one is that um, I, this is, I'm a little bit outspoken on this issue, but <laughs> I obviously, um, but I certainly respect that uh, if some of my partners who have more gray hair than I do feel exactly the opposite and, and, and feel strongly that should be that ALL reconstruction has a real role and they do do it routinely and have been happy with their results. And these are, these are very thoughtful uh, surgeons who are uh, more senior than I am and have more wisdom than I do. And, and I think, uh, I don't mean in any way to take away from the literature that's there and, and, and the rationale. It may, I could very well be wrong on this. And, um, and I think that uh, very well-respected colleagues of mine come down differently on the issue. I, I think it's, it, this is one of these areas of orthopedics where it's just, it's just not clear enough for us to really all agree and there probably is not a perfect answer to it. There probably is a spectrum upon which, you know, some athletes will do fine with it, even if they don't need it. And, and others um, uh, will do fine if they need it and don't have it. And, uh, and it's in that middle ground where I think we probably end up debating things a lot more than we probably need to. But, what, but I do do it in situations where um, if I can't, if I think it's a part of the problem, I'll, I'll address it. In the, the situations where um, I have seen it to be a real problem, I've had probably three, maybe four patients in my 14-year practice that had, I think, true ACL deficiency with a true anterolateral complex laxity issue that I did ACL reconstructions on. And, and the ACL did not fail, but the patients continued to have some anterolateral rotatory symptoms and could sublux their tibia in an abnormal way. And I went back on them because it was limiting enough and did it, and this is before the ALL even became a thing, um, and did 
essentially an ALL reconstruction and their symptoms went away. So I do think it's, it is an issue. It's just kind of rare to be there for the routine ACL patient. I'll do it in situations where um, it's like a repeat revision ACL or a complex revision multi-leg case where either I objectively can tell that there's some laxity there or we just really cannot identify another clear cause of a failure. So if you've had an ACL uh, once or twice or three times and it's done well uh, each time, and I see a lot of these people, a lot of these patients are referred to our center that have had multiple ACLs done. And, and it's you know, done by really good experienced surgeons that are thoughtful in, in taking care of the anatomy well. And it just isn't clear why it failed. They've used good drafts, yeah. position things well. Those are patients where I'll, where I'll do it in. And, and so technical pearls, um, you know, for when, when I do do it, I, typically, I personally think that if you're going to treat the ALL, treat the ALL. I'm okay. not a huge fan of the of an LET because it it just philosophically doesn't make as much sense to me what you're actually treating, um, and unless it's a prepubescent kid and there you're saying look we're, we're compromising anatomy in some way to protect the physes and, and slow them down until they're they're skeletally mature, but right. with an adult where you're treating the ALL it, it's it's a very simple reconstruction to do you can and you, yeah you've got this marked out here. You can do it through a single incision or two tiny incisions. Um, and I usually will do it through two tiny incisions where you find this, this ALL attachment site on the tibia. Uh, and you can just make a, like a one or two centimeter longitudinal incision and find that bony point. And then you, you attach it either with like an anchor, a knotless anchor, or with a, with a typical anchor and just suture the end of a, of a graft, usually a semi-T graft or a, a trimmed tibiant graft is what I typically will use. And I'll often add some, like a, a suture tape and an internal brace construct to the graft and then secure that with an anchor on the tibia and then you tunnel it underneath the, the IT band and then secure it on the femoral side, usually just proximal and posterior to the epicondyle uh, with an anchor it usually ends up if you're doing it with an ACL it usually ends up being halfway between the epicondyle and the exit point of your femoral ACL tunnel and one pearl there is you, you just you do want to know where your femoral tunnel is exiting with your ACL if you use a, a, like an AM portal technique or a, um, a transfemoral technique like with uh, with like a flip cutter or one of these other tibial tunnel independent techniques that can create a really horizontal femoral tunnel for the yeah. ACL. Your, your femoral tunnel can come really close to the epicondyle. And so you gotta be careful where your ACL is because you can actually come out right where you need to attach the ALL um, very close to the epicondyle. So you wanna just make sure you know where you are with the ACL femoral tunnel first. Um, and then you just secure it and it's dealer's choice Again, how do you know what position do you fix these things in? It's another indication we just don't really understand why exactly what we're treating here. I mean, I have partners who fix these at higher degrees of flexion. I have some who fix them at 45 or at 30. My personal uh, bias has been to do it at um, at 30 of flexion. Actually, as you've got if you've got suggested there in neutral rotation with a gentle um, 
valgus load and with um, making sure the tibia femoral joint is reduced A to P. And then I just secure it in that position. And then I arrange the knee to make sure it's not over constraining and that we're not limiting motion. And that's it. And that's, you know, that's the best I think that, that I've come up with to do this in a way that is, is going to cause the least amount of harm and what reflects the anatomy of that part of the knee. But it really is nothing more than attaching tissue from point A to point B. Um, you know, in a way it doesn't constrain the knee too much. I think you don't want to go too anterior on the tibia because then you can limit your flexion on the tibia. Um, I do think you want to make sure you're you're not too posterior either because then you can you can limit extension. So if you if you find the point on the tibia that's referenced there, it's about nine millimeters, nine to eleven millimeters distal to the joint line and halfway between the between the tip of Gertie's tubercle and the fibular head. And you put an anchor there and you secure your graft to that. If you then go to the over-the-top position or any place between the epicondyle and the, the back of the posterolateral femur, um, you should be fine in terms of not constraining anything. Great. I think that was a, a great um, uh, walkthrough through the different techniques uh, as far as you know how you do the procedure. And yeah, and then Dr. Basically, the pictures I have here, Dr. Laprade and, and Shala, they in their um, in their technique, they, it's very similar to the same technique that you just said. They just they published some paper a while back that I was reading on. And uh, before we wrap up here in a couple of minutes, um, anything post-op in particular that you'll have these patients do? Do you have a particular post-op protocol? Do you keep them not weight bearing? Do you allow them to raise your knee after you do an ALL? You know, if you happen to do an ACL reconstruction as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, another great question. I mean, there's no consensus on this either. I think um, what I have come to, if, if I'm combining it with a posterolateral corner, which I've done on a number of occasions in complex revision cases, then the multi-ligamentous composite reconstruction ends up dominating um, and, and gets precedence for the rehab. So we're, it's toe-touch weight-bearing for those patients for, um, for six weeks with, with motion after a week or two. If it's just with an ACL, I, I my personal approach is prioritize the ACL, and that's really what we're trying to optimize. And since the ALL reconstruction, unless there's a very clear, obvious, dramatic injury to that part of the knee, which I have personally never seen. I mean, if you look at the cutting studies on ALL, where they cut the cut the ALL, cut the IT band, that is not that does not match what we see in practice. And so you also have to be careful about how you utilize those studies to justify doing these surgeries. But um, I prioritize the ACL. So the post-op rehab for me is as if you, you did a normal ACL and I brace my ACLs to protect the, um, the rest of the knee from quad weakness. So that doesn't change. I just brace them and, and have them weight bearers tolerated in extension and start motion just as I would with an ACL. Um, Awesome. Yeah, let's see. Uh, the brace one can hold extension with no leg. Yeah, I think that's a, that's not unreasonable. I, I like to brace them until they get quad control and, and move them along. We know that that kind of rehab usually works the best for ACLs. Awesome. Well, um, Dr. Bisegui, we, we definitely appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think this was a great episode. We covered over a lot. You know, we talked about the anatomy. Uh, we talked about, you know, physical exam findings, what to look for. We talked about the MRIs. We talked about x-rays about different treatment options now we even just wanted some pearls on um ALL reconstructions I, I definitely think this was a good talk i'm hoping the people listening to this really enjoy it and uh, before we go dr paseki we always 
um, allow our, our guests, you know, if you have any social media or anything that you want people to follow you on or reach out to you by any chance, if you want to, you can share it uh, and they can reach out to you or follow you via social media uh, up to you. No, man, it's fine. I don't, I have like zero social media presence. Because <laughs> I just missed that wave of technological know-how. My kids make fun of time, so I got nothing there, but uh, it, it's been an honor to be on. I appreciate it. And, and um, I think it's really cool. I, I just throw some props back your way that you're doing this because I think this kind of thing really is, I think is a really cool way to reach residents and, um, and even fellows on some level as well. Uh, this is a fellow level topic. I mean, this is kind of, you know, this is a tough thing to spend time on in a residency because you're focused more on the stuff that's not quite as controversial. But when you have a conversation like this back and forth, I think it's a key part of, of uh, education. And, and, um, and, and clearly I, I can tell, I can tell in your voice, when I know you're gonna go into sports and uh, <laughs> passionate about it. And so yeah. don't, don't forget about our fellowship at Ortho Carolina because we're crushing it. And uh, hopefully you'll come around the pike and, and come looking at us. We'll do definitely. And again, I, I definitely uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast and thanks so much. And for those listening, Definitely hit the subscribe button, please, and go and leave a review. Let us know how much you love this podcast and love this episode. And until next time.